there are 400 billion stars out there just in our galaxy alone. If only one out of a million of those had planets, all right? And if just one out of a million of those had life, and if just one out of a million of those had intelligent life, there would be literally millions of civilizations out there. Well, if there wasn't, it'd be an awful waste of space. Does the math still add up the way it did when Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey discussed the possibility of intelligent life beyond Earth more than 25 years ago in the movie Contact? Astronomer Chris Impey takes on that big cosmic question in Worlds Without End, a book that starts out tracing the history of the search for planets beyond our solar system and keeps going to explore the prospects for humanity's expansion to the Moon, to Mars, asteroids, and eventually other planetary systems. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science intersects with fiction. Join me and my co-host, science fiction writer Dominica Fetaplace, as we chat with Chris Impey about the search for planets, for alien life, and for new places where spacefarers can someday settle down. Chris Impey has had more than 220 peer-reviewed publications to his name, delving into observational cosmology and the characteristics of galaxies and quasars, and that takes in just the academic side of his career at the University of Arizona. He also specializes in educating the public about the frontiers of cosmology and astrobiology, in dozens of articles written for a general audience, and in nine popular science books. The latest book is Worlds Without End. It's about exoplanets, the search for signs of life beyond Earth, and the future of humanity. Believe it or not, scientists have been detecting planets beyond our solar system for nearly 30 years, and we're just getting started. Thousands upon thousands of planets could well be discovered by the recently launched James Webb Space Telescope, plus half a dozen giant telescopes that are scheduled to go into service here on Earth. There's enough wonder in the search for exoplanets to fill a book, but Chris doesn't stop there. I was frankly surprised by some of the things that he told me and my co-host, Dominica Fetaplace, about his expectations for detecting extraterrestrial life and expanding civilization into outer space. Let's see if you're surprised as well. Dominica began our Zoom interview with Chris Impey by asking what inspired him to write Worlds Without End. It just felt like the subject was booming and, and then was at an interesting stage. So, you know, it's still less than 30 years since the first exoplanet was detected and now we have over 5,000. Uh, and just increasing that number alone is not going to be as interesting as the first 5,000. So, well, what felt like it's happening is the strategies were being clear now of how you'd actually find life on any of those exoplanets. So just to talk about such a fast-moving subject and try and lay out a little bit of the near future. It's hard to write a book on a subject that's changing that fast because then you put a number in a book and the number of exoplanets is changing weekly. So that's, that's an immediate problem. 
Yeah. So why is that number changing so fast? Why is the number of exoplanets being discovered accelerating? I mean, it boomed for because of Kepler. So most of the 5,000 were found just by this one NASA satellite with this modest one meter mirror that just did its job incredibly well. But there's a lot of ground-based telescopes and a lot of groups working on exoplanets now. So, you know, so they're all finding planets by different methods and adding to the, the body count, uh, like I said, weekly. Um, and they're all, of course, trying to find exotic planets at this point, and some of them are trying to move to the next stage of the research, which is the life detection experiment. You lay out several scenarios for detecting life beyond Earth, but what scenario do you think is most likely? Can you share your thoughts on the impact that such a detection might have and how it would be followed up on? Yeah, I mean, I think the most likely now is going to be not from James Webb Space Telescope, because it was never really built for this experiment, but from the three huge ground-based telescopes that are all under construction, will be the measurement of the atmospheres of Earth-like or super-Earth planets and looking for biomarkers, looking for global changes to a terrestrial planet atmosphere caused by biology. That's an experiment that's extremely difficult, but it is definitely possible with these huge telescopes. And it's possible with James Webb, but not at the same level of looking at true Earth clones or anything like that. So that's going to happen. And it's a it's a variable timescale. These telescopes are all under construction. They're all a little behind schedule because of COVID and other reasons, but uh, they're all going to take first light in the next five to seven years, basically. So that's going to be an interesting and intriguing scenario because there is probably going to be a lot of debate over what constitutes definitive evidence. It's one thing if you get a coded message of prime numbers from ET, but if you have a detection that involves saying, oh, well, we have a higher proportion of oxygen than we would expect in the atmosphere of this exoplanet, that's probably going to take a little more absorption by society at large to understand what the implications of that will be. That's right. The evidence is, I mean, spectroscopic uh, data is not as appealing to the general public. People like pictures. And so spectroscopy never gets its fair due in the general talking about astronomy or science because it's slightly more esoteric. But it is the tool of choice here. And it is right that a single exoplanet spectrum will never be totally convincing because it's not going to be perfect data. It'll be noisy. It won't be as good as you'd like. It might not have all the species of molecules you were looking for. It might have the interesting ones at a level that's a little marginal. Um, you know, we have we breathe 18% oxygen in our air. And geologists have pretty much figured out ways to get six or even eight percent oxygen in a terrestrial planet atmosphere without biology just by geological pretty extreme geological processes but you can do it so the whole idea of you know the killer biomarker that just beyond any doubt in one spectrum proves life no that's probably not going to happen it'll be a set of spectra it'll maybe half a dozen or dozen planets saying the same thing or maybe saying different things maybe it turns out that a lot of the habitable planets are dead, and that's a, that's a possibility everyone has to be prepared for. And do you think that there are other methods if someone detects the signs of an anomalous atmosphere suggesting the presence of life? Are there other methods 
uh, I'm sure some people are going to say, well, we've just got to uh, figure out how to look for radio transmissions from that planet or how how can we send a probe to that planet in your book you explain the challenges that are involved with the vast interstellar distances right so it is it's a hard experiment and so the data will be ambiguous some perhaps and um and there won't be enough of it to convince some people maybe and it depends on what the data says of course so beyond that, it is hard to do much better. I mean, the, the issue of imaging exoplanets, that's just so hard. I mean, they're just dots. They're pale blue dots of one pixel, and that's it. And in the foreseeable future, being able to take a picture of an exoplanet where it's maybe six or eight pixels across, and you could see if it had land masses and oceans, that's at the hairy edge. That's decades away and another set of huge telescopes away. So that little experiment which again, doesn't necessarily prove biology. It just proves it's a water world that looks like the earth, with continents and oceans. That's a ways off. The same experiment that's looking for microbial alteration of a planetary atmosphere can also look for technological alteration. So some of the species that people will look for in these spectrum are things like nitrous oxide, which is an industrial pollutant, or chlorofluorocarbons, which you know come from refrigerant gas and so on. So you can look for molecules in the atmosphere that don't speak about microbes. They speak about technology, about industrial activity. And so that's a way to find a different type of information from these spectra. But it's, again, the spectra are not going to be so wonderful that those are going to be very clear-cut detections. It's interesting that you don't really mention uh, in the discussion we're having right now looking for signs of life on Mars or Enceladus, a moon of Saturn, or Europa, moon of Jupiter? Well, and that's because of the time scale, because I think you asked me what's going to happen first. Right. So these three telescopes for whom this experiment is the killer app, it's, it's not what they were all built for, but it is absolutely front and center when they start taking data. So it, they're going to be doing it as soon as they get first life. And we know that time scale now because they're all underway. Until, you know, maybe a year or so ago, I would have been optimistic and said Mars sample return might be the way we find fossilized life forms. Because bringing back Mars rocks is so much better than looking at them on Mars with, you know, the technology we can land on a Mars surface. And that whole experiment is just blowing through its budget and it's, that's pushing off into the 2030s early 2030s or so so that but but that's a that's an important experiment too and that that could yield results i mean these stat samples are being cached and scattered around the mars surface as we speak and they're you know we just have to figure out how to bring them back for a budget that nasa can handle so that will be exciting and then the other places you mentioned yes equally interesting um europa titan enceladus and all are subject to potential missions, but none of those missions will get anything until the end of the 2030s into the 2040s. So those just those are just hard missions. They're expensive, multi-billion dollars. It takes five to ten years to make the mission and another five to ten years to go there and get the data. So you can't do any of these outer solar system things quickly. If someone were to give you $10 billion to find life outside of Earth. First of all, would that be enough? And second of all, how would you spend it? Oh, yeah. 10 billion is enough. I mean, that's the James Webb 
budget and that little hole in NASA's budgets for decades. So it, that's tons of money. You shouldn't need that much. I mean, the Breakthrough Enceladus project, which is philanthropy funded, they claim they can undercut NASA getting to Enceladus by order of magnitude. I don't think that's true. So whether it's 10 billion or 5 billion, I would, I think I'd do the Europa experiment and I would get under that ice. You have to do the thing that's been on a drawing board for decades, actually. You just, you take a nuclear plant and you melt through the ice and you release a hydrobot into the ocean and you have true life detection, you know, including, you know, PCR amplification and looking at genetic material. You have that and you do that under your European ice pack. That would be exciting because there's no reason to believe the European ocean isn't habitable. Yeah. You mentioned that in the book. Uh, could you tell us what makes Europa such an attractive candidate in the search for life? Well, I mean, it's a water world. You know, it has an ocean of unclear depth, maybe 10 to 30 kilometers deep under a few kilometer thick ice pack um, around the whole moon. It's, a, it's obviously very far from the sun, so it's a frigid world, but it's big enough to have its own internal geological heating and it gets extra tidal heating uh, from Jupiter. So, there, you know, that ocean will be tepid. It's not going to be absolutely freezing. Obviously, it's liquid water, so it's it's... Any, anything that has liquid water could have life in it, as we know from the Earth. Uh, and the mineralogy of the water and the chemistry of the water and the surface, the rocks below it, we don't know. We've only guessed that. But there's nothing that suggests it's not a sort of salty sea with the same kind of minerals that you would find in terrestrial bodies of water. And so, yeah, it's a compelling place to send a true life detection experiment. In your book, you write... Quote, among the more than 5,000 exoplanets so far discovered, we've not yet found a clone of Earth, by which we mean a planet with Earth's mass and size on a year-long orbit around a yellow, middle-aged, long-sequence star. So why haven't we found an Earth clone yet, and how important is it to find one for the search for life? I mean, partly it's because we haven't fully sifted through all the Kepler data. So so Kepler was only able through the totality of its data to find an Earth, you know, one year orbit. Kepler found tons of planets with orbits of weeks, months, getting towards a year. But you're down to a small fraction of its data that's sensitive to an Earth orbit where you have to see the repeating eclipse three times, maybe four times to be sure. And and also you're looking in a small category. So um, there probably there are things that are close. There are things that are twenty to thirty percent of earth mass or size or distance or temperature, you know, you're getting close. The reason I don't think it's such a, it should be all an end all of the exoplanet work is that it's not clear that the earth is the most habitable type of rocky planet you could have anyway. It's not the best of all possible worlds at all. People have pointed out how, well, we know that earth, the biosphere has almost crashed several times due to snowball earth episodes 700 million years ago and 2.2 billion years ago and those were you know non-linear unstable events where the earth almost didn't come out of it and that would have been the end of life and then there was a heavy bombardment and there were you know possibly the biosphere was obliterated early on and had to restart so and and we've seen the climactic fluctuations in the more recent past as we try and understand the climate so earth is not this wonderful, stable, balmy place, Darwin's warm little pond. There are 
super earths, which is the biggest category of exoplanets of all, that are actually likely to be more stable long-term and just as habitable. They will hold thick atmospheres. They will have plate tectonics and active geology. They'll have stronger gravity, of course. I mean, that that doesn't mean life can't evolve. But it develops in the ocean anyway, where you have buoyancy, so the gravity doesn't matter that much. So yeah, the Earth isn't the best of all possible worlds or the most habitable world based on what we know so far. So it's nice to find an Earth club, but I don't think it, it should uh, distract people from looking for the most habitable planets of whatever type they might be. I feel like we can't turn away from the discussion of life beyond Earth until we address these ideas that people have that, oh, we're already encountering intelligent life because of these UFOs, which are now known as unidentified uh, anomalous phenomena. And also, there are these recent claims by Harvard astronomer Avi Loeb about an interstellar object named Oumuamua and another case involving spherules uh, in the ocean that have been uh, linked to a different sort of interstellar object. Uh, is there anything that you want to say about those cases? Oh, well, sure. I mean, there's a lot to say, of course, but to keep it short, I mean, the general issue of the fact that you know, we've already found life and it's sort of coexisting with us or it's been sighted or spotted or whatever. I mean, that's a, that's something that most astronomers just don't subscribe to because the Saganism of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That bar has never been cleared. Extraordinary evidence is not anecdotal evidence. It's not video or images because, well, you know, how they can be altered. And even if they're not altered, even if it's video from an Air Force pilot, the interpretation of that data is very ambiguous. So the, the 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 gist of the UAP phenomena and the military, you know, finally admitting that they have a lot of sightings and hundreds of them, and they've now got scientific groups studying that data. You know, the interim reports just all say the same thing. They just say there's no evidence. First of all, they say the bottom line: there's no evidence that any of this is extraterrestrial visitations. And second, they say the quality and of the data is just insufficient to draw any firm conclusion. I mean, you just don't know basically how far away these things are, these lights, these shimmering objects, these dodging around the horizon objects. If you don't know how far away something is, you don't know how massive it is, you don't know how big it is, and you don't know what it is. So it's as simple as that. I mean, you're not dealing with a combination of radar and optical and infrared and, you know, so you need just a lot more data to pull any of these into an interesting category. And that's, of course, what lets you discount the vast number of UFO sightings from the general population. They're just that, that plus all the other suspicious stuff, like the fact that the number of sightings goes down at the Mexican and Canadian border or a country <laughs> the size of Brazil, which has U.S. population and hardly sees any UFOs. You know, so the, the UFO phenomenon is a, is a singularly American thing overall. I'm um, going starting back to Ground Zero and Roswell, um, and and people don't know how to interpret what they see in the sky. I mean, uh, like there was a beautiful irony in the in the uh, the, the whole business over the um, the Chinese balloons and things drifting over, and people look and realize, oh, the balloons up there, there are actually thousands of balloons up there all the time, and it sort of made me recall the origin story of the Roswell incident, which was, it was a high altitude balloon designed to monitor Soviet nuclear tests in the atmosphere. 
And the military didn't want the public to know about that. They didn't want people to freak out just at the end of the Second War, maybe the Cold War, that the Russians were doing that in our atmosphere. So when that shiny high-altitude balloon landed in Roswell um, and was discovered by a rancher and his son and became the sort of the Ur episode of UFOs, the military sort of came out and disingenuously called it a flying saucer. I mean, just just to deflect. I mean, it was almost a joke. An army officer actually spoke to the local press in Roswell and used the phrase flying saucer, and then you're off to the races. Mm. But it was a mil- it was a high altitude military surveillance balloon. That was what it was. And then everyone forgets the origin story, and they now I'm sure that there's a lot of these things that are coming from across the galaxy. The stuff that Loeb is working on is interesting. I mean, he's a provocateur. I think he has a slight messianic streak to him, too. I know him, but not very well. I mean, he's a colleague, and I've met him a few times. He's a very smart guy. And, you know, he's he's a bit of a gadfly. I mean, he likes to make a provocative argument, and and I think that's a good thing to do. It's good to to provoke people. The general consensus on a low law, it's not my field either, I'm not a planetary astronomer, is that, you know, they it's an it's a hard object to fully understand because it was an interloper and you can't go and study it right it's been and it's gone and you just got some data but there is no evidence the planetary science community as a whole given what they know and what they measured have no reason to believe it's an artificial object they can explain the strange elongation of it and even the orbit of it and the reflectivity of it and so on it doesn't have to be a an interloper the more recent one the it's too soon to tell what's going on. But yeah. Lib is right that the things he's working on, these these particular cases that he's picking out, are interesting because you learn something either way. You either learn something new about planetary science, for example, or you learn a dramatic thing about uh, interstellar visitors and, and artifacts that come into the solar system from elsewhere. But I think the strong bet is still that these are natural phenomena and they're just, you know, they're terrestrial or stellar or planetary astrophysics. In the latter part of your book, you turn from the search for life beyond Earth to focus on how humanity can extend the species beyond Earth. And you discuss a number of scenarios for settlements in space. It sounds as if you're partial to the idea that Gerard O'Neill pioneered of actually building cylinders or other sorts of large structures in space that can serve as a habitat for uh, humanity. But there's also the possibility of uh, building a moon village or a city on Mars. Am I right in thinking that you are partial to O'Neill habitats or am I misreading that? I mean, I, I, he was such a visionary. I mean, he's way ahead of his time, of course. But um, I mean, I'm certainly partial to the idea, and I think it's gone from really, even though he worked for NASA during that time, it's gone from pretty much purely science fictional to at least semi-plausible. And the and the reason is, of course, the miniaturization of electronics, um, the ability to do 3D printing in space, and if you got a space elevator or something like that, that would be a game changer. That means you get your raw materials up into Earth orbit essentially for free. And at that point, you can build very big things up there. So it's a few technologies away from being realizable, which means it's 
decades, maybe half a century, maybe a century, I don't know. But it's certainly on the cards. The moon base, Mars base will, of course, they will happen, not as fast as Elon Musk will tell you, but they are going to happen either by governments or by these uh, entrepreneurs who are willing to lose their shirt, basically. They're willing to sink tens of billions of dollars, their fortunes into it. So that's probably what will make it happen because it's definitely a hard thing to do. Um, I don't think it's the future of humanity. So it's a, it's almost a deflection or a distraction to think of us leaving the earth because we're never going to do that at large numbers or sufficiently to make it a plan B. Uh, I just think it's coming from a different place. I think it's coming from the the exploration urge that humans have always had, which let us explore the planet and go down the deepest cave and go to the Arctic and the Antarctic and go to these very inhospitable places, not quite as inhospitable as the moon or Mars, but close, and and occupy them and live in them and, and see if we can eke out a life there. Um, if humans leave the planet in any significant numbers, it will be an extraordinary biological experiment because at some point the colonists, because there'd be a small number of them, so the bottleneck effect in genetics means they will diverge uh, as a population more rapidly than normal, and so you'll they'll speciate, and at some point they won't be humans anymore. They'll be the next thing, and that's extraordinary. That's never no one's ever had the prospect of that whole of history going back hundreds of thousands or millions of years. So just that alone is an extraordinary prospect. And then, you know, it plays into all the hopes and fears of what you do when you go off Earth. Are we going to behave badly the way we behaved on the planet when we went to places we thought were uninhabited, but there were actually people there, so we just pushed them out and took everything? Are we going to spoil it, you know, or treat it like a national park where we kind of respect the physical nature of the place and the unspoiled nature of the place? Mar Mars is beautiful and austere. Um, we could terraform it maybe eventually, and then it wouldn't be Mars anymore. It'd be something else. So these are big issues that we would wrestle with. We'd have social experiments. Some would be utopian. Some would be dystopian because there's no laws. The UN doesn't work in space. The Human Rights Commission doesn't work in space. There's no rules. There's no laws. It's a wild west, a big wild west. So some of the experiments could be very dystopic. They really could. Hopefully not, but we don't know. I thought I would just do a lightning round where I'd mention one of the concepts that you talk about in the book, and you would provide a soundbite, just a teaser so that people can go to the book and say, wow, okay, I want to learn more about this. So here we go. Space solar power. Uh, absolutely a way to solve our energy problems because uh, we can harness the sun's power and beam it down to the earth. Okay, asteroid mining. 30 to 50 years away, fortunes will be lost initially, and then there may be fortunes to be made with trillions of dollars worth of precious metals and rare earths on a half-kilometer-sized asteroid. Okay, intentional genetic modification for space settlers. Uh, almost certainly going to happen since space settlers will be very technology-forward, and they will have motivations both from that and from their difficult environment to genetically modify themselves to be better adapted to that environment. And finally, multi-generational starships. That's very science fictional. So we're now talking about a millennium project and maybe there the most plausible way to get to the stars is actually 
dystopic. It involves what are called embryo starships, where you just take frozen embryos because they're a lot lighter than sending people and putting them on ice. And then you have robot nannies to raise them and they get to their destination. Some people don't like that idea. I can see why. Yeah. Speaking of science fiction, the latter part of this book contains references to the work of authors such as Ursula Le Guin, Octavia Butler, and Kim Stanley Robinson. I'm wondering, did science fiction influence your decision to become an astronomer? And also, have you ever thought about writing a science fiction novel yourself? Yeah. I mean, I was raised on on the sort of what you'd call the classic era of science fiction. I mean, I was I was a little kid in the 60s and a college student in the mid-70s. But, you know, I was raised on Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov. And uh, and then I and then I dropped it for a while. I went into science and I kind of put science fiction down for a while and I came back to it through some of these more innovative writers. Kim Stanley Robinson's a good example, actually, because he writes so well about environmental issues as well as about space and astronomy. So, yeah, I've always had a, a you know, continuing interest in, in science fiction. And I actually wrote a novel called Shadow World about a decade ago. I had to self-publish it because at that time I didn't have the publishers that have been doing my trade books. So I have dabbled in science fiction. Do you have any idea what your next book is going to be about? Well, I have some ideas I'm tossing around. The one is just to look at a dozen or so of the key elements of life and of biology and geology and just tell the story of those elements, the cosmic story of those elements. And this, this harks back to a Primo Levi won a Nobel Prize for Literature and was a chemist, wrote a book called Periodic Table. So it's not really his version of it, but it's a, a new version of it. So that's one idea. And I had another idea. You're talking about the fiction, science fictional realm. I had an idea to write something called a post-apocalyptic guide to the universe, where a, a survivor of an apocalypse where most people die, um, who's, who's curious but never been a scientist or learned much science, he sort of ends up having to painfully and painstakingly recreate some of the principles of science just to survive. And so he gets to discover things fresh that we all once knew. A recent poll found that 40% of those surveyed think that we'll discover an intelligent life on another planet sometime in the next 50 years. How likely do you think that will be? And will people be disappointed if we never find it? 50 years is an interesting time frame, and, and I probably would go in on a bet like that, but more likely than not, we'll find it in 50 years. I, I t- intelligent life. Yeah, intelligent life. I think intelligent life is almost, by definition, rarer than microbial life, and it could be a lot rarer, but also it has a lot of scope if they're sending laser pulses or radio pulses across interstellar space, then we can see intelligent life at distances that far exceed any of the exoplanets we're going to inspect for microbes. So I think it's still on the cards that that could happen. Uh, and so SETI, my, you know, the subject to look for that, is a side bet in astronomy. It doesn't take most of the funding. It's, it's quite an easy and cheap thing to do. And it has a low or and a very uncertain probability of success, but it's worth doing. But just because it, it jumps across all the uncertainties of evolution and biology to say, are we alone? I don't think people think microbes are going to give us companionship in the universe, which is when if life is discovered in the microbial way that we've been talking about, that will be front page news and then fade from the news, fade from the news cycle for the average person within a few weeks. It will change astronomy forever, be the biggest discovery of the 21st century, change biology forever. 
But for most people, it won't be the total game changer that finding intelligent life would be. And if intelligent life is not found by 2073, I guess we just keep looking, right? I think by then, then you're sort of answering the question that it's extremely rare or not there. Because this is very tricky because the methods you use involve technologies like radio and lasers and so on. And what if they don't have radio or lasers? Well, some of them will, if you imagine. But those, the sensitivity of those methods are are going to be so good by that and open up, have been so much searching and listening by that, that if any of our type technologies exist on millions and millions of planets around millions and millions of stars, then we would see them. And at some point, the null result becomes meaningful. It just says they're either not there or they're exceptionally rare. And that's what could happen in on 50-year timescale. Well, one way or another, I, I hope we do get a satisfying answer to those deep questions. And I know that Worlds Without End is a good way for the general public to be introduced to those questions and the potential answers. And so thanks so much, Chris, for being with us on Fiction Science today. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's good to be with you. To learn more about Chris Empey, Worlds Without End, and the widening search for alien planets and alien life, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. You'll even find a link to the latest news about UFOs, or as they're now officially known, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, or UAPs. While you're online, check out DominicaFetaPlace.com. Don't worry about the spelling, just follow the link from Cosmic Log. Thanks to James Emily for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies. <laughs>